everybody welcome to the oilers rig radio podcast uh i am uh steven and um well first let's start with who everyone else is uh megan tell us about the megan experience um my name is megan i teach high school here in edmonton and um i don't know that's that's about all i got right now i am very happy that the plans I had for tomorrow got canceled because now it means I can stay home uh, in my sweatpants all day. That does sound nice. But we didn't just come here to find out about Megan. Avery, what about you? Well, I am a man of many places, many talents. You can find me on Yahoo Sports Canada, Avery Sports Show, The Hockey News, Your Mom's House, many places, many Uh-oh. talents, like I said. Uh, would you describe yourself as a man who wears a lot of hats or a man with a lot of jobs with one great hat? I would say both can be true. I think in some weird way, both can be true as I am a man with over a dozen hats in my collection. He's just a, you only a have a dozen hats. Somehow well, that's way fewer than I was expecting. Well, the problem is that, you know, my, my head outgrew my head most of my hats. I have to go, I have to go hat shop and they replace the collection because, yeah, when your head grows, hats don't grow with you, unfortunately. I understand. As uh, no one at home is able to see, I am currently wearing a hat that does not fit my head because I have a big head because it's so full of knowledge and wisdom. Um, You might be saying to yourself, hey, we've grown accustomed to Stephen's energetic uh, nonsense off the top of the podcast. What's going on? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's my little bit of personal news. I drove down to Red Deer last night to see great Alberta bands Wolfric and Thrillhouse and the reunification of one of the great Alberta bands, in my opinion, Dusty Tucker. And I had a grand old time, and then I came, got home around 3 a.m. and slept for about 12 hours. I woke up, ooh, let's say 20 minutes ago, which means I missed what appears to have been one of the most exciting hockey games of the season. The Oilers' dramatic come-from-behind victory over the accursed New York Rangers and their demon... Uh, figurehead Stan Fishley. Hey, did either of you see that game? And if so, tell us about it. That's the most recent news. What was it like? I woke up, checked the score, and the breath just fell out of my lungs. Avery, I did watched you the game? only the first period, so Avery, it's all you. Yeah, I watched this entire game. This is a game in which, well, Edmonton once again came out flat. They didn't look inspired. Like, this is a game in which defensively, they were a mess. Then the Rangers took advantage of that. But everything got helped by the fact that, hey, the, the coaching staff had some great challenges to deny Rangers, uh, Rangers some goals. Like, this game really should have been 3-0 if it wasn't due to the fact that coaches' challenges went Edmonton's way. But for the first 40 minutes, this was a game that was dominated by New York. The power play looked, looked locked, lost to a penalty kill, wasn't doing that great. But they found a way in the third to literally flip a switch and get goals from... Two from Bouchard, a goal from Dry Seidel, a goal from Dylan Holloway, his first NHL goal. And it was a thing in which, if you're an Oilers fan, you're happy, but you're also frustrated because you're wondering, where was this before this team went down 3 nothing, And where's the consistency been for most of the season? This is the kind of game where you want to find a way. Like If you had magic, you'd want to bottle this for when they play Florida on Monday night. But like the, the consistency not clicking all the time, it's going to hurt this team because, great, they, they came back and won. But you can't always just rely on one great period to bail you out against other teams later on this season. You can't. 
I uh, couldn't agree more. In fact, my follow-up question was going to be, and I think you you touched on it, but uh, let's get an official answer. Maybe there is no one answer, but does a game like this, does it leave you feeling more encouraged or discouraged? Because on the one hand, they clearly still have this. Maybe discouraged is the wrong word. Are you more um, enlivened with hope or frustrated? Because on the one hand, they have the switch. They have the switch, clearly, and they can flick it and score four goals against the New York Rangers, a very good team with a very good goalie. And that's not nothing. On the other hand, they can't seem to find the switch on a consistent basis. Like, I'm happy that they found it, but it would have been like, Megan, you saw the first period. Um, Do you agree with uh, Avery's assessment that it was a dark, depressing time? Yeah, it was real bad. Um yeah, the, the group chat was uh, on fire during that first period. Um, it was terrible. The uh, it, And it's one of those things, too. Like, I was looking at looking at Twitter and watching what people were saying uh, as the period was taking place. And, like, lots of people just gave up on them because it was like, oh, look, a matinee. Oh, look, another shitty game. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and so, yeah, it was not pretty. Uh, so the fact that I had no idea they came back and won, I was like, wait, did they actually? Because I did not believe it. <laughs> yeah so i don't know avery would you say you're more um discouraged by the by how hard it is for them to find their button their be good button or are you more energized to know that they still have it i, I would say it's a mix of both to be honest with you because yes it's discouraging that this team isn't able or for some reason can't figure it out but there was a little bit it occurred to me because most of the goals came from names that were not 97 and 29. Yes, Drysdale scored, but you did get scoring from Bouchard. You did get a goal from Dylan Holloway. So this team can show you that, yes, they are capable of getting goals from beyond those two guys. But for some reason, this team can't put it together night in, night out when the elite team in the NHL aren't relying on one or two guys. We don't see we don't see Colorado relying only on McKinnon or um, McCarr to bail them out. They've got lines one through four can do it. You see Vegas one through four. You see uh, Carolina. Like the elite teams in the rest of the NHL don't live and die by one or two guys. And Edmonton showed they can do that, but you got to do it every single game. You can't just do it one game out of fifteen or one game out of twenty. Yeah, no, uh, I totally agree with that. I think that's the basic. The fundamental criticism of this team is when uh, McDavid and Drysaddle are going, they seem undefeatable. And if those guys are even running at just a 7 out of 10 or lower, then they are the opposite of undefeatable. Uh, they cannot be not defeated. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you and your, your buddies can throw some skates on and, and maybe take them in a shinny game. Like, they just – I don't even know if I would say it's a lack of uh, depth. Like, I, I mean, the depth isn't – Clearly is not fantastic, but I've certainly seen worse than the depth can't seem to um, get it going. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a genuinely interesting question. And we still, to a lot of people's uh, eyebrow-raising interest, have Evander Kane's um, $5 million. I mean, maybe the plan is, I don't know what his recovery is like. Maybe they, they don't want to spend it until they're sure that uh, he's going to go to, um, like, basically that, that they can couture off him, that they can keep him on the LTIR until the playoffs start. But I don't know. Do you see uh, Do you see a move getting made here, Megan? Or um, is it up to the coaches to figure out what to do with what they've got? No, I don't think they're going to make a move at all. Um, I think that they are 
I think that they've shown us time and time again that they're very unwilling to make any kind of moves. Like this isn't just a this season thing. This is a last season thing and a season before thing. Um, they're not super willing to go out and like do stuff. Um, and I think that we're sort of stuck with what we see on the ice, which as you said, is fine. If Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl are firing on all cylinders, but if they're not, and I have said this for years, like I'd like to go back and search uh, the group chat and find out when the first time I said it. But if one of those two guys gets hurt, the Oilers are one step away from complete calamity. Like if any, if either of those guys is out for any length of time, they're absolutely hooped. They do not have the skill or the depth to make up for losing one of those players. And even now you mentioned uh, Sorry, no, go ahead, Avery. I mentioned, you mentioned about uh, making a trade or um, for lineup. Like, Ken Holland is not savvy enough um, to make a trade that would uh, fix a lot of issues. Like, Ken Holland keeps talking about, you know, I'm not going to trade, I'm not, not going to trade a prospect or a pick. It's like, dude, the winner to win for his team is now. Who cares about what's going to happen in 2028 or 2029? Who cares? Your winner to win is right now. And other GMs across the league have made moves if someone goes down to help their team in that instance. Ken Holland isn't savvy enough and the front office around him is unwilling to sacrifice the future when you have to win right now. They this 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 continuous assumption that we got to work on the future when you got to win now is ridiculous. Like make a move right now. You want to win or you want to win in 5 years? I I'll push back slightly in like I know that this is a very uh, trendy um Thing. The trend is maybe a little dismissive. It's a very popular opinion. I would say what you were saying is the thing that uh, seems to be the thing to say, uh, which is who cares about the future? Let's win right now. I, I still continue to have some concern for the future. Um, I actually think one of Ken Holland's most defensible uh, positions is his his basic idea that I will trade any pick, but I'm going to, um, if anything, he trades some of his picks far too foolishly, which is how I would describe the Broussard trade. He just throws away any pick that's not a first, but he really hoards his first. And I think that's not terrible business because, I mean, even looking at the team right now, um, well, they haven't quite, like our best immediate hope is uh, some combination of Dylan Holloway and uh, Broberg putting it to together and at least becoming like contributing NHLers. And at that cap hit, that's that's really how, how you win. Like that's one of the ways that... Uh, uh, to to get around the cap is to have got people on um, ELCs uh, who are contributors, and the best way to do that is to have uh, first rounders. So I I'm not quite there, but I will say you can say it's because he's not savvy enough. You can say it's because of some uh, misguided strategy that he have, or may or may not be misguided. I don't know. But if you look at Ken Holland's uh, history, he doesn't fire coaches and he doesn't make hockey trades. He trades picks for help. And he trades uh, guys he doesn't want anymore for picks. But he does not make a lot of trades. He's not a horse trader. He's no Glenn Saylor. He's not even a Kevin Lowe. He is an extremely conservative uh, general manager, which, <laughs> ironically, I think would have been fantastic when we hired Chirelli. If we would have hired Ken Holland instead of Chirelli, it's not that I think that uh, it's simply a matter of style. I do think that time has shown Ken Holland to have perhaps been a little bit uh, overrated, but he does do some things well. And I think that conservative approach probably would have uh, worked out quite well for us at that time. And whereas at this time, 
it is it's just one hell of a bet. I still don't think it's impossible. Like I'm there's a lot of teams like this around the league where I look at them on paper and say, well, they're better than they're showing. And I think they could put it together. And every year some team does. Some team has a tough first 20 games, then they do click. So I don't think waiting is always a bad call. But especially when you appear to have five million dollars of extra cap space in between now and the the uh, end of the season, there's a lot that you could do, and it's who knows what he what he intends to do. I don't know. Um, I have a question. Go ahead. Let's put our time traveling pants on. We hired Ken Holland when instead of Peter Torelli. Yep. What does Ken Holland do at the 2016 draft and subsequent free agency. I think he maybe still makes that Talbot deal because I think that uh, we've seen that he's willing to trade non-firsts and we didn't trade any first for that. Um, but I think he makes those draft picks. I think that's the big difference is I don't even know if he takes that swing at, um, at Dougie Hamilton, which as much as, you could debate whether or not that would have worked. That was the play. I actually think that like there was a lot of uh, Oilers fans and I'll totally say I was one of them who said, I know this is a loaded draft, but we already have all these young players. What we need is an out of the box defenseman. Who's both young. He's the same age as these amazing forwards we have, but he's ready to be very good right now. I think targeting Dougie Hamilton was a great move. The fact that Chirelli was doing it made me think that, Oh, he knows what's up. Excellent. But then when that fell through, uh, because his old bosses hated him, um, which remains odd to me, they, they fired him. What did he do to screw them? But they clearly, the Bruins office, uh, there was no love lost between them and Chirelli. Uh, so uh, Hamilton wound up in Calgary. And then uh, Chirelli made a massive, impulsive, bad reaction, um, just like, well, I got to get somebody. And then he still traded the same picks for a to, to say he's the worst for a guy who never ended up even making the NHL. Like, well, Hamilton was already a good NHL defenseman, and he traded him for a guy who'd been passed by several people within his own organization. That trade would never have happened. And honestly, if that trade never happens, that is such a foundational switch that who knows what happens. Like, on the, I think a great question is, as we just said, uh, Holland, or Holland doesn't like trading uh, players. He just likes to keep guys. Uh, who knows what he would have done with Taylor Hall. Taylor Hall clearly uh, was not on good terms with some people in both Hockey Canada, which Holland's a, a good part of, and the earliest front office. Um, I'm not going to speculate as to who's the good guy or bad guy there, but there just clearly was a, a, a gap there in um, personal philosophies. So he may have still moved Taylor Hall, but I don't think the um, – just because I don't think he would have made the Reinhardt trade, I think that already – just switches so much who he would have picked who can say but i have no reason to believe that he wouldn't have got one of the elite prospects who was available so um who knows but i think that that trade would have changed everything i don't know megan what do you think you suggested what are your well, how do your time no because I'm, I'm thinking about how ken holland like you say doesn't really like to trade players and i was thinking more about like the taylor hall thing I, because it also like we know that that peter trelli brought in lucic because he oh, played yeah. for him in Boston and all of that nonsense. And that was like the replacement, quote unquote, for Taylor Hall, except like in no world are those two things equal. But anyway. Um, that is the kind of bad move that Holland would make. He he really overvalues veterans. Like He I does overvalue think... veterans, 
But I'm but I'm Luchich curious about the trade. The thing that made the Lucic trade so crazy was we already had Maroon. But I don't want to. Yeah, but but it's it's the trade itself. It's like the one for one because like if we look at the Oilers roster now, um, Adam Larson is uh, not here. Uh, he did not want to continue playing here, but from from things that I've heard, which I find really fascinating. But he's no longer here, so that trade is now like a moot point, basically, because you got nothing for him. And you gave up something that you probably shouldn't have given up for what you did. Anyway, but I'm, I'm th- I've been thinking about it a lot actually because, like, I wonder, I wonder too, like how how things would be different if we had had someone in the front office being like, make not make those panic moves. Holland seems to be the opposite. He doesn't make panic moves. I agree, and that is uh, that is bad. I think on the other end. Because it seems like he's got a plan, but he's just not going to do anything until it's the exact right conditions to like execute the plan. I think that is total. That that's not just fair. That's one hundred percent accurate. It's not so much saying that Chirelli is a. Well, I actually don't think very much of him, but it's not so much that I think Holland is a genius as whatever you think of his raw intelligence. His strength is he does not panic. Whatever you want to say about Holland, he's not going to make a panic move, even when he probably should. Like what's what's the Avery? You're a learned man. You're a man of letters who writes for a living. What's yeah. the opposite of panic? Like, wh- how do you describe someone who's more stable than they should be? Calm, you could say. When you See, calm of- even still sounds positive. Like, I don't know what the word is, but I'll say I'm the same way. Like, I uh, always, I, I don't like to react big. I like to find okay, well, what did you do that? And often, like when I look back at my life, the mistakes I've made have usually been ones of oh, um hesitancy if anything you could accuse hmm. holland of hesitating rather than panicking um, like i wonder if it's I almost like, like stubbornness like yeah, i wonder if, if it's just like he's he's just a little bit stubborn he's like this is how i'm gonna do this and no one's gonna sway i expect he say that it is a lack of panic and even uh, a lot of loyalty like if you watch the way he's always stuck with his coaches even when he shouldn't have in uh, at least two cases I think he made the wrong move to not uh, change coaches. Um, and he would have said it's either loyalty or uh, dedication to the plan when it was a lack of um, being able to uh, read and react. Um, it was stubbornness. He's a stubborn guy. That's that's totally fair. And he's being, for example, right now, very stubborn on Broberg. Which, to go back to <coughs> pardon me, Avery's point of who cares about the future, I care about the future. Philip Broberg is the ideal solution here at, uh, at for the Oilers' defensive woes, both because of uh, his age, because of his style. He is an excellent stylistic fit for the new NHL. For that, uh, I'm going to give um, Jared Bednar a lot of credit for this, but I think Dave Manson coaches in the same direction. Who we like that, not just puck moving D, but specifically mobile D, quick D. Uh, Philip Broberg is ideal for that. And he's uh, still on his entry-level contract. He's cheap. He's super cheap. He's a perfect fit in every way as long as he's capable of uh, coming up to the NHL. And frankly, not just being an NHL player, I think we need a top-four defenseman at this point. So I like that Ken Holland is saying, I am going to give Philip Broberg every chance to be that guy before I expend a ton of effort of uh, resources to go get someone else to do that job. But at a certain point, there has to be a cutoff where even if you believe in Philip Broberg long term, you say, well, okay, well, actually, I do need something right now. Um, like for me, I'm going to say 
Well, to be honest, I'm going to say that uh, that cutoff point is probably going to be whenever anyone else makes an offer to the Coyotes good enough to get uh, Jacob Chikrin. We're going to say, okay, do we want to beat that or not? But uh, all things being equal, if the Coyotes are standing pat and kind of waiting for us to make a move, I don't know, probably the 40-game mark. We just called Broberg up. Let's see how he looks. But if he's not ready to be excellent, I think we are compelled to make a deal. I'm seeing Megan nod, and I'm assuming since, uh, Avery, what you said earlier, you're nodding as well. How do you feel about that? Uh-oh, Avery died. Oh, no, Avery's dead. Um, well... I will mourn him. Just doffed my cap, put my cap <laughs> back onto my head, and I will head over to someone's mom's house and become their favorite podcaster and token black guy in the name of uh, our good friend, Avery Lewis. Google. Uh, well, his, mic, his mic died, apparently, he says in the chat. Um, you know what? It was interesting. The, the, it's interesting you mentioned Broberg. I'll let Avery kind of get his life sorted out over there. It's interesting that you mentioned Broberg because that first goal, I mean, I know you didn't watch it, but in the group chat, uh, somebody was like, Broberg sucks. Uh, he got beat real hard um, on that first that first goal, and it was very, very ugly. And there's something about it. It, it is that weird stubbornness that, that I think Holland has that, you know, you – Nobody likes being wrong. I'll give Ken Holland a little bit of, I'll defend him a tiny little bit. Nobody likes to be wrong, right? You don't like to be wrong about the choices that you make. And so this is like one of those things, right? And so now all of a sudden, you know, you've sort of made the commitment and you've made other moves around this guy, hoping like you say that he's got the potential for the future, but you can't get the experience if you don't like get the experience. And so they kind of have to be a little bit bullish on him because you know, that's the route that they've chosen. But when he does make mistakes like he did today, it's tough to defend the choice, I think yeah. would be. And I think that, I mean, to to be fair, um, ideally, Broberg would have a back like crooked crack Jay-Z. I'm going to throw that to Avery Lewis McDonald <laughs> uh, for comments. Oh, we're talking about Mr. Mr. Broberg here. We're talking about Broberg. <laughs> yeah. Who else could it be? Uh, you know, <laughs> you know what? He is someone which uh, I I've always been very mixed on Philip Broberg. Like I like today, I I didn't think today was his best best game. I think I think there is value to his game. I think he's 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 going to be a part of this team's future uh, if Holland has has his way, but. If there was any scenario in which you could get a better asset back for him, like if for some reason you could trade him for a Jacob Chikrin, I would do it in a heartbeat. But Ken Holland's not going to do it. Ken Holland is so attached to Philip Broberg and him being part of this team for a very long time that I don't see any move being made to deal with Philip Broberg as long as he's GM still. I think that's sadly true. He was attached to him before he even had him. Like by all accounts, he looked at that draft and said, I like Philip Broberg. And there was such good better like let's just be blunt about it there was better prospects available and i don't like second guessing the draft because i think it's such a crapshoot however you can tell what the consensus is um i think that is i think fair to say and you can tell when a gm picks against the consensus and thinks like no no i i feel i know and ken holland picked against the consensus there was all available evidence that there was uh i'm gonna say three like a lot of people like Caulfield. Some people like Boldy. Uh, for me, I think the one that was clearly the best prospect available was Zegris. But there was also guys like 
Um, oh, what's his name? Who got traded for Eichel? Uh, who's that? Krebs, Peyton Krebs. There was a lot of really good prospects available. Almost everyone had um, Broberg as a mid to late first round pick. Certainly he was good. There was just a lot of guys who most people thought were better. But Holland loved Broberg then. Holland loves Broberg now. Um, so I, I hate to say that I, I think I agree with you. Um, though I honestly, I don't know. Uh, the thing that bailed the Oilers out last year, there was, was two things. I think they did so well in the playoffs, it's easy to forget how not great, I wouldn't quite say terrible, but not great they looked in the first half of the season. Like there was genuine concern that they are, uh, we were still a playoff bubble team. Like it was very realistic that we wouldn't make it. And then two things happened. They switched coaches and Evander Kane fell into their laps for almost free. Um, and say, obviously, we've talked on this show before about uh, the arguments against Evander Kane. I will say that people who I think a lot of criticisms of his hockey game are frankly border, uh, borderline delusional. There was some very uh, famous uh, Twitter analytics experts who called him a borderline replacement level player. And that's why I cannot take their analysis seriously. I don't think they're very good at their jobs, but they seem like very nice people. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Evander Kane dramatically changed this team. And his loss has once again dramatically changed them. And um, so I don't know. But last year, my point is, last year Ken Holland was compelled to break one of his own rules and fire his coach. I wonder if things could go bad enough this year without Kane. And also Woodcroft, to my Mild surprise, and I'm not Nexus Nose uh, expert. Seems to be doing things differently this year, and they don't seem to be working out as well. Um, anyway, so we're not getting our two boosts from last year. If we're back to being a playoff bubble team, which is exactly where we are in the standings right now, by the way, I wonder if Helen Holland could be compelled to break another one of his rules and perhaps trade one of his beloved, either high-ranking prospects or a first rounder. Because he's shown he's very willing to deal second rounders for depth. But this team, as much as we said earlier, that the, the depth is failing. That's because all they have is fourth line depth and lots of third pairing defensemen. He loves accruing third pairing defensemen. As if three third pairing defensemen is better than one second pairing. It's not. Um, what this team lacks, like on defense, I think that like certainly my uh, position is their greatest need right now is the second pairing defenseman. Um, not another third pairing defenseman a strong second pairing defenseman. And if you don't like Chikrin, that's fine. But someone that good, someone who's good enough to be the number three D on this team. And if we get someone good enough to be the number two D on this team, all the better. So, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think he's going to need to make a big move. This is not a team. This team is not as top heavy and then low on the, on the, at the bottom. It's low in the middle. It needs more, at least like middle six and say, oh, okay, Megan's getting really excited. I have a thing to say. Sorry. I was just, as you were saying that, um, do you remember at the beginning of the season? I think it was Don Latrician did his like, uh, the, the like hundred, whatever top hundred players in the league. And he like kind of sorted them out in four tiers of like the best players in the league. And I may mm -hmm. or may not have made a uh, tongue in cheek comment about how, if your team has three players on the list and two of them are in the top tier and one is in the fourth tier, that's not good enough. Um, and those three guys were McDavid, Drysaddle, and Darnell Nurse. Um, that's exactly this. Like that is the problem is that they are top heavy in the wrong way. Um, basically they've got these two guys who are both line drivers. Um, but then today, the thing that changed things is that Woodcroft put them together 
to play on the same line and that made all of the difference but like the problem with that is if you have your superstars on a line together then that means you have three lines that are like third lines at best because you don't really have a second line if that's the way that you're going to sort of construct the roster or deploy the roster I guess the roster is already built and like that's the problem. That's the fundamental problem with this team. Because if you have these two guys that you have to put together once in a while for like that offensive spark and it works great, but that underscores the other issue that if one of them gets hurt, they're absolutely hooped because you can't then split them up and take one guy off the top line and put him on the second line. Cause you don't have that other guy. That's the, that's the big issue I find. I think there's this idea on Twitter that we should never put McDavid and Dreisaitl together. And I will say strongly, I actually disagree. Um, especially you look at the way this roster is constructed. Ryan Nugent Hopkins is paid like a second line player. And so, and Zach Hyman is paid like a second line player. So if you've got a second line of Nuge and Hyman and even Yamamoto or JP, they're all like, if those guys are all living up to their salaries, then I don't think it's unthinkable that you have uh, the two of them together at some point. Um, how good Nuge is at evens is, I think, a matter of uh, some debate. And to me, like, I think that's part, to be honest, part of the problem is Nuge and Hopkins remains an excellent power play player and still like a, a passable uh, penalty killer. Um, he has fallen off over the last few years at even strength. He, the last I looked at the stats, I haven't actually looked at them recently. He's been better this year, which has given me um, some encouragement and by better i mean like in the analytic sense like he actually last year he had awful results at evens like he was bad across the board this year he's not getting points at evens but he at least isn't getting quite as terrible shot shares and chance shares but um yeah i don't know i think i am in the uh the team of we need more from nuge i think we're paying him to be like realistically, he should be able to be a center on a second line when he's got two good wingers, and we can give him two good second line, especially when the whole team's healthy. We can give him two good wingers. Um, so, I really, I mean, the, what I guess I'm trying to say is, I don't think the problem is the forwards, especially when Kane is healthy. But even when Kane is not, um, I still think this forward group is good enough. Maybe not uh, cup caliber, but it is good enough. To me, the problem is the D, and it's obviously the D. Um, Jack Campbell's start to the season, I don't think is doing anyone any favors, but, uh, if you want to say that Skinner has been so good that we can say the platoon has been good enough, that's sure. I'll roll with that for right now. Cause I don't think there's anything we can do about Jack Campbell anyway. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I just think the, the problem is the D and if you want to actually say perhaps coaching, perhaps it is, I don't know, Avery, you're actually with around the team a lot more. Have you noticed anything different, uh, with Woodcroft this year? Oh, uh, you know, I it really what he's done. He hasn't really changed that much. Every so often, he's still rolling eleven and seven. He still emphasizes, you know, wanting to try and limit zone entries. But for some reason, it isn't clicking like it was in the past. And it's a good point you made about Nuge how you would want to see more from Randy Hopkins this year. I know he was on pace to be a point per game player. He's dropped off at, at certain times. He has dropped off, but for the most part. Warcraft hasn't changed a ton. He hasn't done anything really different. Aside, well, I guess it's one thing, um, the physicality of um, Puliyarvi's play has increased, which is funny because um, more physical Puliyarvi is a bad thing. Like, his game isn't really meant to be a physical player, and you're seeing other aspects of his game drop off, which is kind of odd. I don't know if he was told by 
um, Woodcroft and Holland to be more physical, but it is needed. It's not that isn't needed in his game at all. So, but for the most part, uh, Woodcroft hasn't changed a ton. He's not really a coach that's going to be all that drastic and change up strategy that much to an extent, really. Well, his four check's been a little bit different. He's been deploying a two-one-two as opposed to the one-one-three, um, a little more. I, if I'm being totally honest, I just uh, I don't know if I would call myself a sharp enough tactical mind to give a detailed explanation of uh, the difference. But I have noticed the four checks a little bit different. Who is an interesting uh, note. If I wanted to say something controversial, I would say he has also just straight up not been good enough. Neither is Yamamoto. It's very fashionable on his Twitter these days to criticize Yamamoto. He's obviously uh, been hurt a little bit, but before that, he straight up wasn't good enough. Neither was Puyo Yarvi. You, for guys who are getting paid $3 million, they both do some things good, and they are getting some certain kinds of good results. I wouldn't exactly say either of them have been so bad you'd say they're the problem. But on in the modern league, you need cap efficiency. Everyone needs to be earning their salaries, and realistically, you probably need a few people who are underpaid. And... The combination of Fogel, Pugliarvi, and uh, Yamamoto are all getting paid on average $3 million each, and they're all playing like, I would say, $1.5 million forwards. And uh, I see that as a significant problem. And we were hoping that Holloway might be able to show up and be so good that uh, he was being underpaid enough to maybe make up for that. That has not been the case yet. Scored today. Scored today. Um, The cloud's been... Uh, certainly worth his uh, money, but he hasn't been like we're just not getting any offense from uh, people who aren't playing with McDavid or Drysaddle, and someone's got to freaking score at some point. Like a lot of people feel that the big problem is the we don't have a like nurses are only defensive D who seems capable of defending against strong players, and even then, not necessarily at an elite level, but he at least can skate with them. And some people say we need a more defensive D, and maybe we do, but I don't know our our forwards who have scored in the past ha- aren't scoring now. So we did win today. It's worth pointing out. We won today. I don't, we shouldn't be too doom and gloom as fashionable as it is, but uh, uh, I don't know. They're just too okay. I think is the problem. And they can't, I think you could fairly criticize the forwards, the goaltending, the defense. Um, what's left coaching. I think coaching. you can criticize pretty much every part of this team. because no part has been strong. It's been a bunch of, okay. Uh, the power play is incredible. That's the one. Like, even to be honest, even McDavid and Drysaddle at evens haven't been elite. They've just been so good on the power play that it's uh, mm-hmm. that that you have to call their season successful. But I don't know. I don't know if I have anything uh, left to say about the Oilers. Megan, thoughts? Um, no. I mean, oh, I well, it's not about hockey specifically. Um, but I would like to talk about their autograph session that they hosted at West Edmonton Mall. By all means. I've got some thoughts. Um, so that was the thing. I don't know if you remember, but like but when we were kids, that was the thing they did like quite often. There was like open practices at the at the rink in the mall, and then they would go around and do like an autograph session later. And there'd be like two guys at a table or three guys at a table, and you could bring your whatever to get signed, or they had cards or a little autograph book or whatever. I remember going to those as a kid. I think the last one I went to, I was like it was a daytime one, but we had a PD day from school. So I got to go. Um, I was like in grade eight or something. And I think that's the last time that I went to one. But I remember like those being very much just to like get, you know, 
have like the players kind of be out there and like meeting some fans. And it was just like this little thing, this little autograph thing that they did this year. And Avery, we've talked about this before. So jump in at any time. Um, seemed insane to me that there were people like lined up at three o'clock in the morning to get autographs from hockey players. Like I get it, but I don't get it. Like I still have my little autograph book. It's nice. It's pink and green. Um, I still have this autograph book that the last time anyone signed anything, I was like 14 years old. Um, and it's kind of cool, but like, I cannot imagine what would drive somebody to line up at three o'clock in the morning for something that started at 6 PM. I totally agree. It was insane. Um, everyone involved was insane. I don't get it. You said you get it, but you don't. I straight up do not get it. Like, I understand wanting autograph. Like, I get the autograph part of things. Like, to have it in whatever, or to get, like, a, a jersey signed or, like, something like that. But my understanding is you couldn't even do that. It was hockey cards or they gave you something, and that was it. Yeah, it was really restricted compared to um, prior autograph sessions, which I don't, I don't like. I understand, you know, limiting people from doing from doing pictures, whatever, because you keep the keep the line moving though. But you know, saying you can't autograph certain things, I thought that was really weird. I'm not sure why you would limit what fans could have autograph. I'm not sure why what the reason would be for that. I, I'll, if I'm being totally honest, I don't really even get the autograph thing. I think autographs are weird. Like very recently, I was at a hockey game where, uh, because it was Ryan Smith and Lee Fogle night, Lee or Yari Curry was there. I was in my Yari Curry jersey. I did not. I'm sure if I had seen him as I was walking around the concourse, I would have said, I, I don't know, I guess can I get an autograph? But um, I don't know. I just don't care that much about having someone sign things. And I don't understand why anyone does other than kids like you said when i was a little kid i uh went to oilers day there was oilers and eskimos day which at the time they were both pretty close to equal in my mind and uh i got some autographs i don't remember who autographed stuff but i remember that i got to uh sit on craig mctavish's lap for a for a picture and he was uh i think i sat on the eskimo my brother sat on mctavish's lap he was a real nice guy real real friendly chat who talked chap who talked with us a little bit that was that was cool. It was a very fun day as a kid. Kids like meeting people who are on TV. But if you're older than the age of like 11, I don't understand why you care. Like I've walked by Grant Fuhrer in the mall and it was cool. It was like, hey, there's Grant Fuhrer. That's neat. I enjoyed seeing him in person. We exchanged a friendly nod. But um, I don't know. What do you like? They're human beings. If you're again, if you're over the age of 11, rein yourself in. I have no idea what you are talking about. What's that? I said eleven. That's a that's a young age. Tell them tell them to train it in. I would say I would I would give a person say 21, 22, because you're still you're still youngish. You're still a kid at eleven years old. You're, a, a teenager will still get very excited about meeting a pro athlete. I, I, to to say, I don't think I met anyone as a teenager. I've met celebrities as a kid, and I met celebrities as an adult. So maybe I can't quite gauge at what age it's you are like. Yeah, they're a person, even though they're famous. So here's the thing you mentioned as if you're over, older than 11, like give it up. It's like taking a baseball glove to a baseball game. If you're over the age of 12, it is exactly the same thing, but I will say this. Yes, it is. I will say this though about like the whole autograph thing. I think like for a kid. Yeah. Like it totally makes sense. Right. Like you get to meet your heroes. You got this thing. They signed it. Um, the problem is that people, and I think one of the reasons why the stuff was so limited is because then that way people couldn't turn around and sell it. And I think, and I, I get that. Because it's become such a, a thing to commodify 
you know, autographs and, and whatnot that like people will go like, like go to games, go to whatever, and they will get stuff signed so that they can then turn around and like put it on eBay or sell it or, you know, Facebook marketplace or whatever it is that they're going to do this, like sign something or another. But like, to me at this point, the notion of standing in line to like not meet, like, and that's the thing, you're not meeting an athlete there. You you get approximately 2.6 seconds of their time while they sign the card. And then you just move on because there's 8,000 people in line behind you. And like, it's not an actual genuine interaction. I do remember the carnival of champions uh, as a kid. That was kind of cool. Cause you actually got to like interact with the athletes um in a more meaningful way because they had their autograph stuff and there's pictures but they were also like at some of the booths and like doing the games and like that kind of thing so there was this opportunity to like you know engage with them and I thought that was kind of cool but yeah I just found the whole thing to be like I mean if you want to go get autographs from pro athletes I guess like fill your boots like what are you gonna what am I gonna do but I just found it really bizarre that there were people lined up for 15 16 17 hours to get an autograph well, like you said, it's, worth, it's for the money. It's worth it for them financially. But some of them, I don't know, some people must have been there with kids. Sorry, Avery, go ahead. I was going to say, too, it also shows how, how athletes are still are still lionized by society to an extent in which, you know, if I have free time, I want to meet uh, Carmen McDavid or Leon Dreisaitl. And this might be, um, and, and for, I'll, I'll, for some people, it might be the one only chance to meet a professional hockey player. It might be um, their one chance to meet an NHL player. Not, not, not everybody is in a position where they can meet hockey players or celebrities. I say, I say as someone who has worked in hockey for many years, you know, I've met celebrities before I've met Hollywood actors. So for me, it's, you know, it's whatever, you know, I've met, or I met, I met Orlando Jones. I've met Cuba Gooding Jr. For me, it's like, yeah, whatever. It's people, but other people, you know, it's like, you know, they're never going to meet a hockey player and like, they're going to meet that person. So to them, it's their one chance to get interaction with a hockey player. That's not just via watching a TV screen. So I get to, to that extent, I can do get that to that extent. Even as an adult, I still think it's neat to meet famous people. Like I even remember I didn't even meet him. I just had front row seats for Metallica and being like, there's Metallica. That's them. And I'm within 20 feet of them or Jason Muse as an adult. I've been mm-hmm. within 10 feet of him. And I'm like, that's, that's kind of neat. I've seen them on TV, but the only people that I was like, Actually, I wouldn't go so far as say Star Trek, but Star Trek, but like, wow, was people that I looked up to as a child. Like, I've been, and I didn't meet any of them, but I've been close to uh, Curry, Tikkanen, and Boreas Salming. And that was like, wow, look at that. Those are the guys that as a kid meant a ton to me. Because realistically, no, certainly no athlete means that much to me now. Like, I still think they're cool. I'm not trying to crap on athletes, but there's a certain childlike wonder that you have that, to be honest, I think if you still have as an adult, that's probably unhealthy. Um, So I don't know. It's like, I'll actually back up what Megan said about the Carnival of Champions. It's cool to meet them. There's a lot of people that I would like to meet and a lot of people I would like to like go to dinner with. There is maybe no one who I would feel anything from like like talking to for two seconds, like literally two seconds and then moving on with my life. I think I have too high an opinion of myself. I don't need you to <laughs> confer value upon me by bumping into me. I'm like, if anything, I'll confer value on you. Line up to meet me. I'm Steven. How about that? You're Connor? Congrats. I'm Steven. I've done cool stuff also. So, uh, you know, I think that's a very healthy way of looking at it, but like it does not change the fact that people lined up for 15 hours to get 
Connor McDavid's autograph. Like that's the that's the sort of fundamental thing, right? Is like I agree with you. I've been um I do have a Yari Curry autograph um on a poster that I got at a McBain photo studio in 1987, uh, <laughs> where on which he spelled my name wrong. Which, <laughs> as a four-year-old child, I was very upset about because I told him how to spell my name and he spelled it wrong anyway. Um, but according to my dad, I don't remember most of this, but according to my dad, because Yari Curry was always my favorite, um, I was like, I talked the whole way there and the whole way home. But like once I got up to the table where the autograph was taking place, I did not say a word other than tell him how to spell my name. And my dad was like, what is wrong with you, child? <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a fun story. Even again, it would be different. Realistically, I'm curious how many of those people were actually lining up because they wanted Connor McDavid's autograph versus how many people were lining up because they knew that it was going to be a good hourly rate when they eventually sold Connor McDavid's autograph. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't understand how the autograph industry works, and both by which I mean I don't know how it works, and it blows my mind that anyone would pay for that. So uh, maybe hey, didn't, you, didn't you say there was stuff going on at like Hall of Fame weekend too? Uh, for the uh, NHL, yeah, there was. It was autographs. Like, and there was lots of people, like, because I know we've talked about this before, but there must have been lots of people just, like, autograph seekers in that sort of, like, you can very much tell that it's all about trying to sell the product afterwards. Oh, yeah. Like, for the Hall of Fame inductions, yeah. Like, the amount of autograph seekers that were, I saw in Toronto that were in Sedin jerseys that were trying to get autographs from Danny Alfredson. There are, are you even guys other from other par, par classes because um they have on the, they have their main red carpet, which is meant for um the inductees, their guests, the media to stand on, and they block it off. And the amount of media, the amount of uh, autograph seekers that hang around outside the enclosed area is nuts. And and a lot of players, you know, a lot of people just walk past them. But someone like a Matt Sundin, like Matt Sundin stopped signing autographs, and it was like, oh my gosh, they swarmed on him when he signed one guy's card. A crowd of twenty-five people ran towards Matt Sundin to get autographs. He had to be put like security had to come get him because you know, at a crowd, Matt Sundin, he's very he's a very nice gentleman. He's very polite. He would have stayed the entire time and signed autographs the whole evening. But it's like, yo, I just saw people with dollar signs in their eyes as he signed jersey this jersey that card that hat that jersey like it's something else when people get in around these players it's crazy i've uh here's a weird little story i've experienced that but like from the celebrity angle because one time when i was like 25 uh, me and my friends were in mexico i actually don't remember what city we were in but it wasn't one of the most major ones and uh someone at the hotel was like hey um there's this free music festival at the park. And so we're like, oh, let's go check it out. And we went and check it out. And it was clearly all extremely 13-year-old centered music. So it was just full of 13-year-olds. And for reasons that we don't need to get into, we were all dressed in matching outfits. And one of my <laughs> friends in particular was like bright blue eyes. And he looked like Mark McGrath, but like prettier, like not as rugged. Uh, he had bright blue eyes bright blonde hair and he had it all spiked and he kind of looked like a pop punk icon. And then the three of us were just uh, hanging out with him being a bunch of other like 25 year old 20. He, oh, I think he might've even been 21. We were all in our early twenties though, dressed in matching outfits. And we were just walking around being like, man, this is not really our scene. 
And then some uh, girl just walked up to him and said, can I just get a picture with you? And he said, all right, which uh, <laughs> sometimes happens when you're traveling. People just see a tourist and want to take a picture with you. I never totally understood why, but it happens. And uh, so he took a picture with one like very uh, shy young girl wanted a picture with him, took a picture. And then instantly it's like the entire crowd was waiting for one person to break because we got swarmed by hundreds of 13 year old children. Uh, I would say it was uh, at first it was just girls, but then there, some guys started seeing like, Oh, this is what the girls are doing. This is what we're doing too. So we just took like, honestly, dozens and dozens of photos. The, the guy with the bright blonde hair definitely got the most attention, but they were trying to get pictures with all of us. It was clearly worth more if they could get two of us in the same picture. Every now and then somebody was able to get all four of us in the same picture. It was crazy. It was like being in the Beatles for like five minutes. And then we slipped out of it in like uh, Bugs Bunny style. You know, when like the big fight animation comes and then the cartoon character just crawls out the back. That's what we did. They eventually were just taking pictures with each other. It was like the best <laughs> example I've ever seen of a bunch of people doing something, even though no one knows <laughs> they're doing it. They were all just posing for pictures with each other. And we uh, left. It was it was bizarre. But yeah, that one photo got snapped. And then it was like dropping a, a little bit of blood in the water in a, in a pool full of sharks and piranhas. It was crazy. So, And I'm you sure go. you loved every minute of it. I had a great time, even though I was getting the <laughs> least amount of attention of the four of us because I was the most rugged and manly. They wanted, uh, they they were looking for poppy, poppier looking people, but oh, okay. uh, right. I still had a great time. We all had a great time. It was uh, surreal, and one of those guys was the basis of Dusty Tucker, who I saw playing last night. That takes it uh, full circle. I don't know. You want to talk about anything around the NHL? Um, oh wait, before we do it, just a quick note on the Oilers. I earlier said that McDavid and Dreisaitl, who I believe are first and fourth in lead scoring, have not been elite at evens. I should qualify that. I'm not saying they're not doing anything. Um, they haven't been getting – I wouldn't say their analytics are elite, but they're still scoring uh, like crazy. McDavid is eighth in even strength scoring, and Dreisaitl is 32nd in even strength scoring. Um, they're still quite good, but they're being so otherworldly good on the power play. Uh, and power play points count, so – Good for them. But uh, I maintain if we could get them some line driving, not driving, but uh, the kinds of wingers who aren't necessarily elite finishers, but are elite at covering up for the things that McDavid and Dreisaitl are not elite at, uh, that seems like what the goal should be, which is why I've got time for the Pugliarvis of the world. I just think he's overpaid by a million and a half if this is the rate he's going to score at. Um but like Avery said, there's clearly some coaching things going on with him. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see what happens. The guy wanted them to uh, sell the farm to uh, either offer sheet or trade for this uh, summer, second in league scoring. So imagine if we had sold everything to get Jason Robertson while he was in a contract uh, dispute, which obviously his team might not have done, but they were quite public about not wanting to pay him what he was asking for. So who can say? Anyway, Jack Eichel's fifth in league scoring. He seems to be back. That's cool. Uh, any around the league stories that you guys want to talk about? I was going to say the NHL does not care about um, certain rules when it came to the Connor Hellebuck situation in Winnipeg, Dallas, where he goes down, he's bumped in the head, he goes down, loses mask, and the Dallas Stars score a goal with him down, face laying face down. Now, this is a situation which I understand NHL doesn't want 
a situation where any goalie losing a mask means play stops and you stop a scoring chance, which is why they say play stops on an eminent scoring chance. But I have an issue with that in the sense that when Hillebug got bumped, he goes down. There's no eminent scoring chance. The star is still passing the puck around to get to Jason Robertson. And Hellbuck is down for a prolonged period of time, even after the goal. In that instance, blow the play dead, blow it down. There's not eminent scoring chance. If it was a bang bang play, okay, but there's not eminent scoring chance. Goalie's down for a while, puck is still being cycled. How can the goal still count to I felt in that situation? I'll be honest, I haven't seen that yet. I'm going to, uh, huh, interesting. I'm going to uh, look at it right now and uh, render judgment. Megan's turned her chair around dramatically, so I'm going to assume that she hasn't seen it. So while I'm looking at this, I'll just throw out for group discussion, hey, you know what I was right about? The Golden Knights being just fine at goaltending. I really believed in Logan Thompson. I thought that his stats looked fantastic at every level coming up to the NHL, and his limited NHL experience looked good. And I thought Aiden Hill was at least a experienced backup, as was Boussaint. I thought they'd be fine, and they've been better than fine. They've been terrific. No, I I agree totally, Stephen. People were saying, ah, finally, Golden Knights are going to... People were saying, ah, finally, yes, the Golden Knights are going to die. No, they're not. They were not going to fall off. Like, And also, too, people forget. If they only won one of the shootouts last year, they'd have been the, they'd be, they'd be, they would have been a playoff team last year as well, but they couldn't win in a shootout in the final three games of the year. And yeah. you still have... And this is a team that still has um, Chandler Stevenson, Patch Reddy, they got a healthy Jack Eichel. The Gold Knights are right where they are supposed to be once again. They are not falling off any, at all, even with no, um, even with the injury to um, Robin Leonard. They are going to be just fine, no matter who is in that for that team. I do think I'll, I have to kind of, I, I, I guess I feel bad for the Golden Knights because I still think they're worse than they were last year because they had to give up Max Pacioretty for nothing, not for effectively yeah, nothing. Right, yeah, absolutely right. nothing. Probably dealt him, yes, that's right. They did deal him. So um, I do feel bad for them that they couldn't. But then, um, like you said, I say I feel bad. They they made a calculated bet. I thought it was a very good bet, but uh, it didn't hit. Sometimes that happens. They weren't able yeah. to win one of those shootouts. So you didn't win. You didn't win enough. And, yeah, it was because of injuries and you had to sat, sit people. But uh, that was the risk that you took. And sometimes a bad bet hits and sometimes a good bet doesn't. And they just had too many injuries. They remind me a lot. Of that uh, Lightning team, I think it was two years before they won the Cup, that um, uh, not the year that they got swept by uh, Columbus, but the year before that um, when uh, they just didn't make the playoffs because they just had too many injuries, even though on paper they were one of the best teams in the league. And there were some people saying, well, this just goes to show that they weren't one of the best teams in the league. But lo and behold, they were. And the wise people like uh, me and you were saying no. They are still an excellent team, but you just you can't fight the dice is what I've learned from years of playing Settlers of Catan. No matter how well set up you are, if the, the dice just roll against you enough times, that'll defeat you. So the thing to do is not draw the wrong lesson. Going back to Ken Holland, not overreacting. There, there is a time for being stubborn. And Steve Eiserman was stubborn on the lighting, paid off big. This year, the, the Knights management were stubborn on... Uh, their own team with uh, not making the playoffs last year and then losing their goalie. And that's paying off big. This I'm watching this, uh, Hellebuck. Man, this is right. I, I know exactly what you mean. Like he, it's not like it was a bang, bang play, but they never lost possession and they never lost. Ooh, ooh it's, it's, 
it's close. I am inclined to agree with you because ultimately uh, somebody could get killed. Probably, I assume hitting the puck with the, in the head with a slap shot. So probably they should have blown uh, blown it dead, but it's close. That's real close. I don't know, Megan. Did you see the the Hellebuck play from uh, earlier this week? Yeah, I saw it last night, and then I couldn't believe that the goal counted. And the thing, I think, the thing that like bothers me is that if you are a skater and your helmet comes off and you touch the puck, it's a penalty. And like, it's not his fault that his mask goes flying or whatever but it seems that seems to me like you can't call it a penalty obviously but if you if the play is blown dead when a skater touches the puck without a helmet I kind of think it should be probably less even like less regular no more regulated I guess is what I'm trying to say for goalies like if a goalie's mask pops off I don't care if there's an imminent scoring chance or not I kind of feel like the play should be blown dead because the goal like I just, I don't know, that becomes like a safety issue, ultimately. Um, I don't need to see someone's head get stepped on. Because, you know, they're like, well, you know, it's an imminent scoring chance. And then I just, I don't know, I think that that's like, I think it's bad business. I think that uh, the Jets uh, should be mad about it. And I think that that was probably um, a very loose interpretation of what the rule actually says. And uh, should probably be looked at so it doesn't happen again. I mean, fair enough, but I'm going to just point out that when you say it wasn't his fault that his mask got knocked off, that is the point of contention. The NHL has to be very careful, and to be honest, in general, they do a bad job of this. The NHL has to be very careful about what sort of behavior they incentivize. And if you tell goalies, hey, anytime your mask falls off, no matter what's going on, we're going to instantaneously uh, blow the play down, then you get into, uh, I believe it was uh, Dwayne Rolison was one of the masters of flipping his uh, his, his mask mm-hmm. off. Yes, he was. He was clearly doing that on purpose clearly and you would have had like even as an Oilers fan he was obviously doing that on purpose so you don't want goalies to know hey anytime you flip the the mask off your head no questions asked we're instantly going to blow it down that is uh to end in that scramble I don't know that Hellebuck did it on purpose but I'm just saying had he done it on purpose it would have been a good call and you just don't want to get goalies thinking along that direction uh, looking at it, to me, it looks like he probably didn't do it on purpose. I'm a little bit surprised. I, I don't think I'm quite as far into the shocked and outraged zone as uh, you guys are, but I'm surprised they that it counted just because it seemed pretty clear that someone bumped into him. He didn't knock it off on purpose. Uh, like Avery said, a couple of seconds passed. The play was still happening, but ultimately, uh, you know, you got to put safety paramount. I expect he could have popped back up had he wanted to. And in hindsight, that might have actually been better for getting the whistle blown because then it wouldn't have looked, it would have looked like he was about to get hit in the face with a shot. But um, I don't know. It's a, uh, I think it's an interesting play. I will say just on the note of incentives, um, I was uh, reading a, a case study on honor as it relates to the Zidane headbutt. And I will say this is clearly a sport wide problem, but it's still an issue in the NHL. We don't want to be incentivizing people to quietly say the worst things they can think of to people because they'll get rewarded with a power play or by getting the best player on the other team red card. Um, I'm not, I don't know that the solution to that is necessary. Like, I don't know, to, just to talk the World Cup's happening right now. The big mistake that Zidane made was giving in. The second big mistake that he made is as soon as he saw that the refs thought and the red card came out, he should have stepped on that guy's face, just kicked him in the teeth and knocked his teeth all over. <laughs> 
the field. You're already kicked out of the game. It's the last game mm -hmm. of your career. Make it worth your while. That was the mistake that he made. It wasn't worth losing the World Cup for a headbutt. Maybe now that, that other guy gets to feel like I helped my team win the World Cup. So that's he should have really got him. But anyway, you, you don't want to incentivize that rat-like behavior. No. Uh, so that's I think the NHL in general doesn't consider, consider it incentives uh, maybe at all when they make their rules. And that's why where I think most of their bad rules come from is they don't realize that they're incentivizing people to play like Matt Kachuk and that they're, they're incentivizing coaches to uh, play boring hockey in the third period. I was going to add to you mentioned the, um, well, the skater, I mentioned the uh, skater rule. Megan mentioned the skater helmet rule. And it's funny. NHL wrote that rule so badly that they had to clarify it again because there was a point in which when they were first introduced where McDavid lost his helmet in one of the first games that rule came in. Lost helmet, the puck was near him, and he went back to the bench. Lee had to Lee had to clarify and say no. If the puck is coming near you and you might score, you can stay on the ice helmetless. Players didn't understand that the league meant like it was, it was written. So, it was written so poorly initially that players didn't know. Oh, the puck is coming to me. I can play the puck helmetless. They thought they thought it meant you can't play at all. Like that was, that was funny that players didn't know they could play the puck helmetless. Like. That's how badly the rule was really written. That had to clarify and say, no, you can play the puck helmetless. You can't just play, you can't just stay on the ice willy nilly without while you put your helmet on. Like really any shelling and stuff right there. Like, <laughs> but the, even that is stupid. Yeah. Like that should be an all or nothing. Like that's so dumb. That should be like if your helmet pops off, you're done, and you play the puck. It's a penalty. But like there should be absolutely no gray area on that because then ultimately it becomes a very subjective sort of thing while you decide. Is the like you know what I mean? The player in the moment is like, well, the puck is coming to me, but it's still like twenty feet away. Like, do you know what I mean? Then at what point do you? That's dumb. That's a stupid. That's a stupid rewrite. Somebody not that long ago on Twitter was like, why can't the refs just call the game the way the rule book was written? And I was like, because it's actually impossible to do so. Yeah, <laughs> like that's the the that's real problem reason. is the rules are too convoluted to for it's them true, to though. be called accurately. Yeah, uh, it really actually bothers me when people say that because the. It's inherently subjective. It's extremely subjective. If anything, I feel we should more like one of the main reasons why I want to get rid of the uh, uh, replays on penalties is it doesn't actually help them quote unquote get it right. They just make a different subjective call. It's subjective. This is the most subjectively ref game, and that's not even the NHL's fault. That's just the nature of the game. Uh, you need to accept that. So. I'll, I think to the, I think to the, the NHL is afraid of say for example. I mean, David lose the helmet. He's on a breakaway and score. I don't think the league wants. To, I don't think the league wants a moment where you know, oh, he scored. We lost, we lost your helmet. That was a penalty. I don't think the league wants that situation where I mean, David scores helmetless and doesn't count. But that's why you make the rule. Yeah. Then it's like if your helmet's off, then the then you touch and you touch the puck, then mm -hmm. the play gets blown dead. Like that's it's a very easy. It doesn't matter if you're on a breakaway. It doesn't matter if you're behind your own goal line. Yeah, it's a very easy. Well, that, that makes like, it black and white, but that I don't know if making it black and white is their goal. I I think I actually would say I agree with Avery on this one. That uh, if McDavid if McDavid's helmet falls off while he's on a breakaway, I want him to take the shot. Um, I get I don't maybe I'm more comfortable with uh, uh, the certain element of danger, an inherent element of danger. I'll say, um, but I would like even that, which I think goes to show on that Hellebuck uh, play too, like. I think they probably should have blown it, but I agree that it's close. I think I'm the only one on this podcast who thinks there's an argument to be made for having not blown it. 
Um, so yeah, maybe uh, let's not look past the possibility that I'm a bad person who's very comfortable with the <laughs> physical destruction of these gladiators to my amusement. It's Stephen George Peros actually in disguise. Wow, that's breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the mustache tracks, so uh, it does. You folks at home can't see it, but I've got a Perosian. Um, it's it's beautiful. It's the I now know what it's like to have a kid because. Before I had the mustache, I would look at people with mustaches and say, what went wrong in that person's life where they thought that was a good decision? And then now I have my own mustache and I see this is what life has been about the whole time. So I relate to parents. Um, it's it's just great. It's fun to watch it grow and learn. And uh, I feel re-energized and re-engaged with life. <laughs> On that note, uh, anybody have any, should we play a round of deeply personal questions? I mean, I have a question. It's born from part of our discussion, but I do have a question. Okay, that sounds uh, perfect. Okay, so. Which famous person would you actually yeah. wait in line to get an autograph from? Because there's got to be at least one. I understand that you think autographs are stupid, but like, who's the person that you're like, yeah, there's an opportunity, and yeah, I'm going to wait in a long line, and uh, this is who it's going to be. Living or dead? Or sure. just living? Living or dead. Okay. Um, okay, well, <laughs> no, I'll stick to living, because my honestly, uh, my other answer would be, well, Jesus Christ, of course, but uh, that seems not really in the spirit <laughs> That seems not in the spirit of the question. No. Um, interesting. I think I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the name that jumps to mind. It's David Letterman. I think it would be cool to even have like a three second exchange. Like, hello, Mr. Letterman. And he'd go, hey, buddy. And then he'd sign it. Uh, that'd be neat. I'd, I'd wait in line for that. Okay. Avery, what about you? Uh, you know what? I will. I'll stick to living. And I'll probably say Will Smith. Will Smith you wouldn't be afraid that you would catch hands from him or whatever? You'd, you'd be okay with waiting in line for the autograph? As long as you don't make any G.I. Jane 2 jokes, I should be good. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. All right. Um, for Well, I, I would say mine has probably changed in the last uh, while since, let's say, COVID started. Because it turns out that uh, people are crazy. Um, <laughs> just leave it at that. I think. Oh, it's like, and it's dumb. This is my question, and I'm going to have a hard time answering it. Um, I have waited in line to get like books signed and stuff before, which is kind of cool. And I think like autograph copies of books is something that's really, really neat. Um, but I think. I do I have a book. Autographed by Miriam Tabes, and I think that's cool. But again, I met her. I like I we spent hours together. I didn't just bump into her. Please tell this story while I'm thinking of an answer to my own question. Oh, it's not like uh, an amazing. It's not like I you know seduced her or anything like that. We uh, I just took a creative writing class, and at the end, Miriam Tabes was our like special guest, where I'm going to read your short stories and talk about them with you. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, that's very cool. She's she was very complimentary, actually. To be honest, I thought I knocked it out of the park. She really liked my story. I felt very good about that. We had a good talk because at the time she was 
I don't know if I'd say touring is the appropriate word, but she was touring on uh, Complicated Kindness, which is a book about growing up in a small Mennonite community. That's where I came from. I uh, <clears throat> lent the book to my mom, and my mom said that uh, my mother clearly enjoyed it a lot more than Marion Tabes did. She said that she thought that it maybe it was a little too negative for her uh, touch, but it was like it was like reading her own childhood. Um, and so I really enjoyed reading the book for that. We had a lot to talk about. Uh, it was a fantastic experience. That's cool. You also have a book autographed by Norm Macdonald, which I feel you also That's, met him. Uh, that is uh, true. That was also a great experience because we actually talked a little bit. Like I did meet my hero, but we didn't just bump into one another. We had a small chat. That's very cool. Um, I would say that mine would, if I was going to be like very honest about it, my person would be dead and it would be Seamus Heaney. Um, I did have a chance to see him speak when I was living in Ireland, um, but there was a very strict no autograph policy at this event that we were at. And I was very sad about that. Um, he died like six months later. So I felt very fortunate to have had the opportunity to see him speak. But if I was going to pick a living person, um, I'm just going to say Sidney Crosby and just be very honest. I would stand in line for Sidney Crosby's autograph. And I don't feel bad about that at all. And if I had the opportunity, I would ask him if he could in fact crush a watermelon between his thighs. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Not a claim. I haven't heard that. Claim. The peng, the pe I'll put a tweet. Out. I'll send you the tweet. The penguins did sort of insinuate at one point in time that yes, he could do it. And uh, yeah, anyway. How hard could it be? Like, surely I could. Could not any of us crush a watermelon between our thighs? Are they that hard to crush? I'm not a big watermelon guy. That would probably put the effort thing on like how big it is. Like that might hurt your actual legs to try and crush one with your thighs. Okay. Steve, I will, send you, I will send you something on Instagram that will maybe help answer your question, but I'll need to find it first. If we get 50 retweets of this week's show, I will crush a watermelon between <laughs> my thighs on some sort of video platform. 50, that's the number. I'm unconvinced um, that anyone listens to this show. So if it turns out 50 <laughs> people retweet it, I will make a, a thing. Hey, I'm... I guess you don't have to answer. I can't make you. But what do you mean your answer changed because you realize people are crazy? It sounds oh, like you I got my, with one of your heroes. I would have probably said Aaron Rodgers, but he's a fucking crazy person. So I don't have oh. any desire to give him any of my time. <laughs> ah, I think he's a fun crazy. I've decided I like Aaron Rodgers now. <laughs> I don't follow football, but um, I enjoy iconoclasts. He's... I like him more than Tom Brady. I think Aaron Rodgers is a lot more fun than Tom Brady. I think that's fair. Okay. Yeah, Avery. I have a question. You know, I I, I, oh. I mean to I mean to Google mine. I mean to Google my question. So bear with me. <laughs> is it because you don't know how to pronounce some of the words, or what? <laughs> like, what's happening? Here? <laughs> wow! How dare you? I'm, I'm, I'm a virtual walker. <laughs> all right i'll ask uh, my question well Avery, avery's confirming his and it's not the most incendiary one ever but uh let's say that you were able to pick a superpower but everyone on earth gets it too does that really my question isn't what would you then choose it's how much does that change what you'd pick do you know what i mean like i guess what i'm asking is to what degree are we really seeking a way to be special as opposed to the ability itself like if i said you can have the power of uh 
uh, I don't know, flight or speed, whatever. Name anything that you might wish for deep in your heart of hearts. If you knew that you could get that, but everyone else will get it too. So now you actually are no more special than you were before. Does that change what you'd wish for? Megan? No, I, I would wish I would wish teleportation. And so, no, I think everyone should be able to just go wherever they want as quickly as possible. And I think that I think that would level the playing field and that would be just fine with me. Interesting. The main reason why I think I asked is I was having a superpower discussion recently. And it occurred to me that one of my goals is that would be to like to get everyone the power. And I get the impression that that is uh, like basically I would like everyone to be able to become whatever it is they wanted. And I don't believe that we need losers in order to have winners. But I'm curious as to how much that is uh, a common and like the common opinion or if like there's this famous I believe it's Gore Vidal quote. It's not enough that I win. Others must lose. Um, there is something to that. Like you can't win in a game of hockey without, uh, someone losing, but I think there's difference between, yeah, I want to win. And some people inherently in order for me to get what I want, someone else has to not get what they want, but there's a difference between you don't get what you want in this event and you don't get to be what you want. Like, I think in order, I don't, I don't find living indoors, um, in like a warm heated house any more meaningful because so do, does almost everyone else I know. Or a different way to put it would be if we were to solve homelessness, it wouldn't suddenly become less meaningful that I am also not homeless. Maybe a different way to put it, a more interesting way to put it would be the other way. Rather than allowing us all to show off what selfless people we are, what power would you want to be the only one who had? And I actually have off the top of my head, flight. If everyone could fly, I've spent enough time in helicopters to know that flying is actually not as fun as it looks on TV. But if you are the only one who can do it, that's pretty cool. Then now you're like this magical creature. And I don't actually think I would be denying anyone else. Like if someone else denied me flight and they had flight, I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. You can be the magical creature. Avery? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I would say I would want I want one flight because we think about how long it takes to get to an airport, security, et cetera, et cetera, boarding time. If I could just, you know, run to my backyard, fly my, if I could just flap my arms and fly, cool, great. I would love that. I would just, you know, flap my arms and fly away to Europe. I would love that, like a bird. That's why teleportation is the correct answer. It's not even flight. It's less complicated. It's just, I feel like teleportation, it, in this one, it levels the playing field. What about, let me just ask you this. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with Star Trek transporter debates. But uh, some of us, myself included, feel very strongly that the transporter kills you and then reassembles a clone of you somewhere else. So that taking the transporter in Star Trek is almost certainly a fatal, like you die. And then someone who's just like you reappears somewhere else. Uh, does I guess, does teleporting scare you along those lines? I think I brought this up the last time we had this combo. I mean, it might. Like, I don't use microwaves because I don't really like how they rearrange the molecules of the food that they heat so like yeah but i mean if we're being if we're talking in this sort of a philosophical sense i think that teleportation is just fine because maybe we're not even here maybe we're just in a simulation and maybe this is the matrix and we just will never know see just without admit that you believe in god you simulation weirdos that's uh the simulation <laughs> theory is so frustrating to me it's that in my opinion the the thing that it's founded on is wrong it's not uh, a good 
assumption to make that, well, obviously any sufficiently intelligent life form would be able to simulate life to a point where it was uh, not, you couldn't tell. That, why is that obvious? I don't take that as a given at all. And even if I did, what's the difference? That's the whole problem with simulation theory is big F and D. Who cares if it's, <laughs> what does that actually change? These fucking nerds are just so desperate to have a higher power. Like, go to church, you losers. Quit looking up to an imaginary matrix. Oh my gosh. I want to I'm say just saying, how do we know that we're not like living it? Okay, fine. If it's not a simulation, maybe this is just like your version of Stranger Than Fiction. And this is just like, you know, your life narrated and you're living it. I don't know. It doesn't have to be a higher power. No, you're 100% correct. We, we can't know that we're not, but where's the so what? What difference no, does fair. it make? If, if I were to tell you, if I were to, let's say that my magic power is I can make you definitively know the answer to that question. Yes or no? Is this a simulation? Are you a brain in a vat? What does it change if you are either way? That's the thing that I don't understand why so much brain power is expended on this question is there's nothing at the end of the question. Yeah, that's fair. All right, this is now a hardcore philosophy podcast. Every <laughs> simulation theory. Go. Uh, I, as someone who was, I, I think simulation is um, a very far-fetched thing. I mean, could it be real? I, I guess. I, I don't, do I think it's real? No, I think it's people who watch much TV I think that's a real thing. I, I do believe in a higher power. I do think that simulation is an insane idea. I think that, um, I, I, I won't say it's not, it's not impossible. I just think it's really, really far-fetched idea that we're all not real. It's all a, a fake thing. But you, but you know what? Hey, if it is, I've enjoyed my time here. <laughs> but if you ask me on the spot, no, I think that's a bunch of rubbish that people like to live into way too much. Yeah, I. Uh, that's how I see it. Also, all right, Avery, what's your personal question? All right, I got one. I I got one here. If you could change one thing about your childhood, what would it be? Um, I would say that I, this is like very, very, my childhood was fine. There's, there's no like, this is not like a trauma dump, I promise. I would say that I wish that when I was younger, my parents had been more keen to like go on big vacations. Not that like we didn't do stuff and go places, but like, I wish as a, but as an adult, I don't regret this. And so this is a weird thing, but as a kid, like I miss, I feel like as a child, I missed out on like doing stuff that all of my friends got the opportunity to do. And like, my parents were like, no, you can't have, you know, a Nintendo. You don't need like those sorts of things. Not for any, like, I, I appreciate it now. I like, I understand where they were coming from. Everything's fine. Um, but I just like, when I was a kid, I felt like I was missing out on stuff that like my, all of my friends got to do. And when you're also an only child, that kind of sucks a little bit. I'm glad that you answered uh, first. Cause I had to, I feel actually really good about my answer. Now there's a ton of stuff I would change about my teens, but my childhood I thought was great. And not only was it great, but I would say the things that I wished for, I think it's fine that I didn't get. Like the number one thing that I wanted was I wished that I was able to play hockey. My family didn't have the money. Hockey is a super expensive sport. As much as that like genuinely broke my heart as a kid, it was the most like I remember driving back from registration. And my mom's like, sorry, we can't do this. This is too much money. That was the most heartbreaking moment of my childhood. Um but just knowing what I know about hockey culture, I'm increasingly suspicious that I dodged a bullet. 
as because also knowing what I know about me, I'm not, I don't want to pretend that I would not have gotten sucked into that. I very well may have. Um, not all of it, uh, but certain, certain parts of it. I think maybe it, I'll just leave it at, uh, maybe I, it's better this way. I have a really easy time believing that it's better this way. Um, and then the other big wish from my childhood I got, my grandparents uh, lived for a really long time. So that was nice. Um, but the, the thing that I would change, as much as I think my childhood went very well, is I wish I would have watched less television, which was uh, fine because I was very insistent about watching it. People, everyone in my life tried to get me to watch less TV. And I still read a lot. I still exercised a lot. I still like went exploring in the forest a lot. I grew up in the, in the rural area. So I spent a lot of time in the woods. But I wish that I had spent even more time doing those things. Um, if I could pick something specific, I wouldn't have quit piano lessons. I would have quit TV. Um, that would have still watched movies, maybe even still watch good shows. The The problem is watching mediocre shows. Nothing wrong with watching good TV. But I would have watched less mediocre TV. Hmm. I'll jump in with mine. I'll say one thing I... I... You know, my childhood, for the most part, was great childhood, great um, time growing up. I, the one thing I would say that I probably wish I, I would have done more of was um, pursuing track and field more. Because that was one thing, for those who don't know, my dad ran track and field in the NCAA for four years at two different schools, at Kentucky and Abilene Christian down south. And I played sports my entire life as a kid. I played basketball, tennis, baseball, lacrosse. But one thing I wasn't really too – it's funny because I like – as a journalist, I love covering track and field. I love I love talking track and field. I love reporting on track and field. Wasn't a really big kid in actually doing it myself. But I had a natural talent for a triple jump and long jump, which my dad competed in. He was a triple jumper and long jumper. And I tried it for a little bit, but I didn't like being pushed. Like, one thing about kids, like, I didn't like being pushed into certain sports. I was much more interested in playing basketball and lacrosse and tennis. Track was more like, yeah, well, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I didn't really pursue it um, too hard. I tried for a little bit, and coaches told me, "You're raw, but you have natural talent. Like I can, like I, I can naturally do the rhythm that you need for triple jump. I can do. I've, I've been out about messing around, and I can do a perfect triple jump technique in a suit and uh, dress shoes. No, I've been trying. It's a natural gift to have. So I, I kind of wish I pursued a little bit more. Actually, see where it could take me because I had natural ability in triple jump and long jump without even trying as a kid. I have a question for you. I wish I had developed myself more. Avery, I have a question for you. Shoot. If you had pursued track and field and like, you know, been become like very good at that, would you have been wearing a hat in all of your competitions or would we, <laughs> would you have the opportunity to see a hatless Avery? <laughs> I don't know. Well, you, you can you can wear ball caps in track and field. So I wear, wear, wear a ball cap. <laughs> I don't want really to bug you about the hat thing so much. I just think it's really funny. Good I do job. appreciate I appreciate the commitment to the bit, though. I think that it's very admirable. Yes, very few people actually. Very there are very few pictures online of me not wearing some from a hat. It's hard to find pictures of me hatless online. I've hung out with Avery in person quite a lot, and the only time he's ever been hatless is when he trades his outdoor hat for his indoor hat. So, like, <laughs> and it's just a very quick transition, like maybe four or five seconds, where he doesn't have a hat on. Uh, that's very funny. Which I almost <laughs> never wear hats, except for uh, right now. 
and it's in honor of Avery. <laughs> how he died earlier. <laughs> well, that's the sode, as the kids say. Uh, thank you for listening. Bless you all on this American uh, Thanksgiving weekend. If you like to give American thanks, if you don't, happy near the end of November. Uh, on behalf of Megan, Avery, Stephen, Alex, in the way, <laughs> keep on trucking.